Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Braxton Hunter, and along with me is... Jonathan Pritchett. And... MJ Jackson. And MJ Jackson, we are so glad that you, a proud Trinity student, is here with us in the house, in a different house, so we all don't die. Welcome to the show. So listen, Matt, uh, tell us a little bit about your channel as we get started, because um, we've only had, in the whole history of this show, we've only had a few guests, right, Pritchett? That's and, right. And so and so you you are one of the few, and we, we want to hear what your ministry is about, what you focus on, where people can find you. Tell us all that good stuff. Okay, well, I started my channel, um, what, late uh, 2018? Uh, I was kind of spurred along and urged and brought into the fold by dealing with urban apologetics. And primarily the guys that I deal with would be uh, some of the folks in the conscious community, primarily uh, these modern day uh, comedics or, or in a more formal sense, uh, pseudo-Egyptologists. They, they love Egypt. Uh, so you, you're getting a lot of stuff from Gerald Massey, the 16 Crucified Saviors uh, type of stuff, uh, uh, theosophy, a lot of New Age, uh, things like that. So, I, you know, I, I kind of deal with that as far as my subject matter. I'm also dealing with uh, the rise of uh, black atheism uh, as well within the black communities uh, as well. So uh, that's what God has uh, you know, laid on my heart. It's a, it's a heavy burden, but uh, I feel called to do it, and I'm, um, I'm trying to do it right. <laughs> well, amen, brother. I'll, yeah, tell you, I'll, I'll tell you what. I don't, I don't know I about Pritchett, say, but I don't know anything about any of the stuff that you just described. I couldn't talk to about any of that except New Age and, and uh, the, how do you say it, the, the, theosophy stuff. I've, I've, I've mm-hmm. read a little bit about that, dealing with the beginnings of um, the Christian science movement, but um, the rest of that stuff you mentioned, not a clue, man. Mm. Well, and you got to you got to know your Bible because parallelomania is alive and well in those discussions. Mm-hmm. And you got to know your Bible. You got to know your Old Testament. You got to know your biblical history. You got to know your New Testament because there is a I mean, that that whole that whole thing. Um, it, it Richard Carrier is pretty mild uh, in his parallelomania compared to a lot of things going on in that community. Um, And and the problem is uh, you have so many people who are well-versed in ancient Near Eastern literature that are outside of the church um, and not enough people familiar with that landscape inside the church that it it makes it sound so much uh, more convincing to people who are unaware uh, of all of that literature, how they can say it was borrowed. And if they don't know the rules of uh, uh, of literary dependence and how things have to, you have to demonstrate um, transmission. You have to show, uh, is it that, or is it, is it direct borrowing or is it just shared cognitive environment and all this kind of, if you don't know all of that, that stuff and all the scholarship on the literature, it's really effective to a lot of people who had never encountered those kinds of arguments. So it's not just, Oh, Jesus and, and Mithra. Right. Mm-hmm. And the, mm-hmm. the kind of things that we normally hear. It's it's all of it. And so uh, apologists need to take note and take it seriously because it's uh, it's growing out there. 
Yes. All right, so what we're going to do is this is the third part of probably what's going to be a four-part series on Hemant Meta, the so-called friendly... We found the friendly atheist, guys. He goes by the name Friendly Atheist. So if you've been wondering which one is the friendly one, this is the friendly one. Um, and he's... Uh, actually, I, I know several friendly atheists. And But we're going to listen to what he says. We are in the middle of 78 questions he has for Christians. As our friend Cameron Bertuzzi often points out, questions are not arguments, but sometimes people say them with a little bit of sass that makes you think they think it's an argument. And so we're going to look at some of these and give our responses, and we'll just get through as many as we can, uh, trying to leave a few, because on the next episode, we're going to try to have Adam Coleman on. You know Adam Coleman, Matt? Yes, uh, Adam Coleman is uh, a, a friend, a mentor, uh, a colleague, uh, a co-laborer in the you know in the field. And uh, yes, I, I am a, a fan of his work, and uh, you know I've tried to model some of the things that I do after what he's done. But wow. yes, he's he's most definitely a resource. Yeah, I didn't. Know yeah, that. And he's, he's also the guy that MJ said got him into this. If you were paying attention. <laughs> Um, I'm, I'm just busy. No, all right, uh, so let's move I, on then. I'm still bitter. No, I'm bitter. I'm bitter that you went on Adam's show before me and then clowned <laughs> me for it. So, so uh, that I, I hope to be on his uh, podcast and and sh make yours look not as good as well, guys. <laughs> uh, guys, so here's here's the thing: Are you two aware of a little religion? that is becoming more well-known all the time called Islam. Have you heard of Islam? Get out of town. That one? Yeah. Mm. 600 Being... years after Christianity, um, but yet uh, rewriting the page on the crucifixion of Jesus and other important d details. Uh, let's listen to yeah. him at Meta ask us some questions about Islam. Here we go. Have you read the Quran? And why do you so easily dismiss their holy book? And then why do you get upset at atheists who dismiss yours? Okay, first of all, um, have you guys read the Quran? I genuinely don't know if you've read the Quran. Uh, maybe I should answer first. I have read much of the Quran. I have not read all of the Quran. How about you guys? Same. I've read a good bit, haven't read all of it. Well, you know, it could be in those bits that we haven't yet read where the uh, amazing truth of Allah shines upon us and we all convert to Islam. But I have to say that I'm skeptical of that and I certainly lack a belief. I don't just lack a belief. I actively disbelieve <laughs> in Allah. What about you guys? Same. So, uh, so I'm not convinced like Matt Dilla, honey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, I'm not I'm not doing a Matt Dilla hunt here. I actively disbelieve. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but. Uh, how, how do you know this? Well, what were his questions? Let's, let's hear it again because I, I ignored myself. Have you read the Quran? And why do you so easily dismiss their holy book? And then why do you get upset at atheists who dismiss yours? Okay, wh why do you guys dismiss their holy book? Okay, have I read it? Uh, good chunks of it, not all of it, completely from start to finish. I've never had the need to. Uh, second, why do, I, why do I dismiss it? Yes. Well, I, I actually... I, I flippantly dismiss it because some of the claims are incompatible with 100% of scholarship that matters on important things like what you just mentioned with the Jesus's death uh, on the cross. And I have heard 
workarounds come up lately for that. Um, and some of these debates, um, I can't remember who it was. Uh, David Wood was debating somebody, and somebody was trying to give kind of a workaround to ex kind of explain that. Um, but overall, the claim is that Jesus did not die, and that's the, the standard yes. claim that's the, been the, the claim. The says for, he did not Citra, die. Yeah. They did not crucify him. They did not him, crucify him. Which right. contradicts and, Christianity at the core. And I think the person, the debater you're thinking of is Muhammad Hijab. Okay, thank you. Um, but other than other than the outliers, that's the claim, and that's the, the to me seems to be the claim of the Quran, of the and that's so easily dismissible that it's you know there's there's no point in me thinking that of all the positive reasons I have for Christianity, plus all of the easily dismissible claims of Islam that I should uh, take it seriously. Now, his last question was, why do I get upset when atheists dismiss? I don't get upset. Uh, there's a little bit of pity. Um, sometimes I get embarrassed for atheists for dismissing it out of hand. I don't dismiss the Quran out of hand. I dismiss some of the claims of the Quran, but as literature, I don't dismiss the Quran out of hand. Um, it's had a profound impact on much of the world for centuries. So you don't, so um, if he means by dismiss, dismiss the claims, no, that doesn't, that doesn't uh, upset me because that, that was the wording of his question. Why do I get upset? I don't get upset. Um, but the atheists who dismiss not just the claims, but dismiss its importance as a, as a, you know, prized piece of literature for centuries that has had a profound impact on the whole world. Uh, um, I just feel sorry for people like that, because um, I don't even treat the Quran with the kind of contempt that sometimes the Bible gets treated with by atheists. So, Well, all right, Matt, what do you have to all add? Right. Well, um, I kind of cut my teeth, uh, you know, studying the Quran, looking at the debates between David Wood, uh, uh, Shabir Ali, um, you know, even some of uh, Dr. James White's debates. Uh, but what, what, what stood out to me was what's called the Islamic Dilemma. And basically, the Islamic Dilemma points out that the Quran pretty much contradicts itself in the fact that it tells Christians to judge it by what's revealed in the Bible. And when we judge it by what's revealed in the Bible, okay, that Jesus is the son of God, and that Jesus is the first and the last, uh, there's no way in, um, you know, Hades that uh, Jesus could have been a good Muslim. <laughs> so because the Quran uh, contradicts itself, and we know that God cannot lie, yeah, we have to dismiss it. So yeah, we have read it. And using the law of non-contradiction, it can be dismissed because it's illogical and it self-destructs. Boom. Mm. What now? Uh, so, yeah, we reject that. And, um, and, and any thoughts, uh, Matt, on why, why, why are you so upset, Matt, when atheists reject our holy text, when you reject the Quran? I wouldn't even say that uh, I'm upset. Uh, you don't look upset. Maybe, no, maybe. <laughs> now, maybe over the last few days has been a little cabin fever. <laughs> but, but I wouldn't. I wouldn't. You know, get upset uh, at all. Uh, you know. Now we do have to expose certain presuppositions, 
but it's nothing to get bent out of shape over. But do yeah. you, the, the question is, do you have reasons for why you uh, reject something? And obviously, I just gave one reason would be, uh, I, I, I like using the three tests that Ronald Nash uh, gives in some of his works. Uh, the test that, that's reason. a mutual crush that you and I have, isn't it? Ronald Nash was awesome. Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah. Test of reason, the test of experience, and the test of practice. Well, Islam fails the test of reason. Uh, the the Quran does. And, and that's a red flag for me. So, yeah, I mean, we have reasons for this. It's not just an emotional uh, thing or some type of fideistic thing either. But there is a, there's, a, there's a reason for rejecting it. Yeah, so so th- th- this whole thing seems to be aimed at an uh, an audience, and I've noticed this about Hemet Meta's whole whole deal. Um, he he seems to be aiming at an audience that is not actively aware of what are going on in worldview conversations at the level that um, even YouTube atheists are aware that it's going on. So this is aimed at people who are maybe casually interested, and they say, "Yeah, why would they dismiss?" Uh, the Quran, the Muslim holy book. Why? Why are they so upset when, when in reality, what a sensible Christian should do is say, no, no, no. Let's see what you got with the Quran. Let's take a look. Let's, you know, break it down for me. Give me your best guy. Give me Shabir Ali or somebody, and we'll listen and we'll talk about it. And the same with with our holy book. The fact is, this channel exists, even though Pritchett said it a little snarky. He feels this way too. This channel exists at least in part because we love atheists. And we don't mean that in any kind of condescending way. And uh, because of that, we're happy when you bring your questions about um, the Bible to us. Because this, first of all, in a very utilitarian sense, this channel can't exist unless you bring us questions like that. Unless you post your criticisms. I mean, uh, I've wanted to do more of the here's 10 Bible verses that make no sense. or We've done a few of those. I want to do more of them. There's just not a whole lot of them out there. So uh, we're not upset about that, at least not the three of us. We want more of those questions, so bring them on. So I think that answers that. Let's move on to the next section. This is stuff that has to do with homosexuality. By the way, um, I have grouped these. Last time around, we went question by question by question by question. And um, this time I'm grouping them under kind of general subjects so we can move through it a little more quickly. But these are questions related to homosexuality. Let's see what Meta says. Is acting on one's homosexuality a sin? Is homosexuality itself a sin? Do you believe gays and lesbians should have the right to get legally married? Would your church ever marry a gay or lesbian couple? If not, and you believe that they should have the right to marry, why do you remain in that church? Why would God create people who are gay and then punish them for being gay? If God is already sending gay people who act on their homosexuality to hell, why do so many Christians feel the need to persecute them here on earth? All right, so the last time, guys, I kicked it over to you. So I'll go ahead and start with this. And and uh, there, there were several questions there, all orbiting the subject of homosexuality. So maybe we hit most of them. I, I'm going to try to flail about a bit, and maybe I'll I'll land on uh, most of the most of what he wants to know there. So uh, basically, the position that I hold, and and you guys may differ from me on this a little bit, but the position that I hold and have shared on this channel many many times is that um, it it is not necessarily the case. So I don't think it is necessarily the case that you are committing sins when you experience passively a desire. Um, for example, 
Um, if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, he's talking about different categories of sin that used to be the case with the, the Corinthian men and presumably women. So he talks about liars, thieves, you know, all these kind of people. Um, and he mentions homosexuality. Now, um, the point here, as I always try to be careful to say, is not to equate homosexuality in any particular way to other things that the Bible categorizes as sinful. That's not what we're doing here. So if you think, oh, you're just saying I'm like this kind of uh, sinful person or that, that's not what's going on here. But the interesting thing I find in that passage, and, and I wrote a chapter for a book that never came out uh, that someone was putting together on this issue, is that while the Bible is very clear that the act of, of uh, that homosexual acts the act itself, not necessarily even the context of the relationship, but the act itself is sinful. So in Romans chapter 1, we find that the act itself is sinful uh, to, to engage in sexual activity with someone of the same sex. While that is certainly the case, um, we live in a fallen world, and because of that, we may have passing desires, we may have anger problems, we may have all kinds of things, and the propensity itself doesn't mean that you are actively engaged in sin as far as I'm concerned. So whenever it says in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 9 through 11, such were some of you, and homosexuality is listed among those were some of you type things, uh, my position is that it doesn't necessarily mean that they, they were supernaturally and miraculously delivered from any same-sex attraction. Now, God could do that, and I believe he has done that, so I don't want to in any way limit God. On the other hand, if we were to say that, it would mean that the person who had a propensity, you know, adultery was mentioned in that list as well as homosexuality. Greed was mentioned in that list. Are we to say that nobody ever experiences a desire, a greedy desire again, or never experiences a desire, a, a heterosexual desire for someone they're not married to? So my position to answer one of the questions he asked is, I don't think you're necessarily in sin because you because you sometimes experience same-sex attraction. I do think you can dwell on that, and then it becomes an active um, lust that you're caving into, just as I can do that um, with a woman who I'm not married to. Uh, but, but principally, if a person becomes a Christian and repents of their sin, including that sin, and is giving themselves entirely to Christ, the fact that they may occasionally experience a desire, a sinful desire again, I don't think means they're no longer a Christian, for sure. And I don't even necessarily think it means that they're um, in sin because of that. So th that's my answer to that. As far as some of the other questions, um, maybe you guys could break that down, uh, but I'll pass it over to you. Uh, ultimately, yeah, we want to thank God's thoughts uh, after him and think about a topic or an issue the way that he thinks about it. And uh, throughout the pages of scripture, people, uh, you know, people were tempted. Um, and we all have struggles that we deal with. The, the problem happens where you give in to that which you're wrestling with. So there's, there's nothing to be, uh, you know, as long as the Lord of Terry, we'll all have to wrestle with something and deal with something. Yes, God, uh, ultimately, yes, it, yes, he can deliver. Absolutely. Uh, but sometimes your greatest victories come through through the struggle, and the struggle might serve a purpose as well. So uh, there's nothing to be ashamed of in being tempted, uh, because you know we all deal with that. But the, the the sin comes in where you give up. So that's what I think about that. 
Well, even though we are Christians, we also still, you know, are undergoing sanctification. I don't mind saying the language of, you know, sinful desires uh, as still, you know, you know, undergoing sanctification. The fall is still, you know, we're, we're not fully glorified yet, so we still have lingering effects of the fall. Uh, so if you want to label those um, desires as sinful desires, I'm, I'm fine with that because they're disordered fallen desires. I still yeah. have those on certain things. Now, is God keeping a checkbox that, that, that crossed his mind, so I'm going to check a box and <laughs> save that for judgment? Day. No. Um, but if you're entertaining those thoughts and desires, like like Braxton was saying, then yeah, that's 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 more of a of a problem than being confronted with a disordered desire and how do you deal with it. So um, that's how I'd handle that. But I mean, is homosexuality a sin? Yes. Yes. So in that sense, it is in the same category as stealing and lying, adultery and murder and everything else, insofar as it transgresses God's law. Mm-hmm. So it, it, my answer to that question is, yes, it's a sin. Is it a sin for, for being a homosexual? It depends on how you want to define that. If you want to define that as somebody with same-sex attraction, uh, you know, just existing as same-sex attraction, is that sinful? Um, I, I want to say, no, existence is not sinful for someone who is same-sex attracted any more than someone who is uh, attracted to those of the opposite sex. And for someone who is uh, a heterosexual, they're they're not to entertain lustful thoughts about people of the opposite sex either. Um, mm-hmm. Whether you're a Christian or not, according to in God's law and God's universe, that's that's a sin too. So, what we inherit from and, Adam is a nature and an environment that is inclined towards sin. And so, I can say yeah. that um, same-sex desire is a sinful desire. In that, in that, in that way, it's a, it's because we have a nature and environment inclined towards sin. That sort of desire is a sinful desire in the sense that if you follow that desire, you will actively be in sin. Uh, whereas if you right. follow your desire to smell a flower, you're not in sin. So it's not a sinful desire. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm a, I'm a married man to a beautiful woman. And if the desire uh, for another woman crosses my mind. Sinful desire. That, that's a, well, yeah, well, yeah, the, 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 the thought of like, uh, you know, an inappropriate encounter with another woman, if that desire, that's a disordered desire. We can call that a sinful desire. Do mm-hmm. I entertain that or do I expel it from my mind and, you know, resist it that's that's the issue now as other questions i don't go to a church that would uh have a have a uh same-sex union ceremony so no so i that that means why do i still go there well that's one of the reasons why i actually go to that church and by the way the churches that do have same-sex marriages in them people are fleeing and they're going to be shuttered within 20 years, by the way. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, hold on, hold on there. Because when we talked about, when we covered Rhett and Link's deconversion, the guys from Good Mythical Morning, that's one of the things they said. They said there are churches out there like that, but by the time they got to the point where they weren't, where Rhett and Link weren't taking the Bible seriously enough anymore to, to care they they actually were like why why am i even bothering with even this liberal church anymore and i think that's for right. that reason that we are seeing those more liberal churches are actually in decline it's the ones that are taking yeah. these things seriously that are holding on now some of the older denominations are dying as we've said here many times 
but but the 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 non-denominational churches and those kind of churches that are still populated. I mean, at least the the doctrinal positions are. Um, we take this seriously. We do. We may have doctrinal differences, but we believe that the Bible is the Word of God and our authority and all those kind of things. So yeah, yeah I didn't mean to cut I, you I, off I, there. Yeah, and his question about persecution. Disagreeing with uh, one's life choices is not persecution, okay? So even even though it's legal in the United States, I'm still against gay marriage, mainly because a marriage is, the word marriage means something. It's meant historically a union between a man and a woman, not a union between a man and a man or a woman and a woman. So am I against gay marriage? Yes, um, and not just for religious reasons, but just on the basis that words mean stuff. So, um, but a disagreement is is not persecution. So I reject the premise, why do Christians persecute gays? Where? I'm not saying that there aren't people in churches and 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 culturally Christians who probably speak from pulpits in manners that are just wouldn't even you know very uncivil ways right they 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 speak horribly they use profane language to to describe uh the homosexual community and all of that um it's almost as if they 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 like what they see in that community so that they can describe it in the most perverse way where they they seem to get joy from that you know there are jerks like that in churches um, I'm not saying there's there's one that's guy that's really popular on the internet who loves to embellish um, certain aspects of the gay community. Uh, some and, and in my mind, yeah, a lot of it's just over the top, ridiculous behavior in parades. You know, sorry, it just is. But some of the stuff that that they do, they just like to embellish it as if they're almost happy they're that way, so they they could rant about it in the pulpit. I I, I get that, but even that's not persecution. Okay. Well, and let me the, say, are, they, well, I just want to say yeah. there are people in the world who suffer actual persecution where they, they, they are violently affronted. And I know you can probably find somebody who got beat up because they were gay, but I'm talking about getting your head chopped off. Yeah. When you say when you say Christians persecuting homosexual, no, not in any meaningful statistical sense. No, it's not happening where we can look at instances of real persecution now. If you want to talk about if you want to talk about persecution of homosexuals, why don't you go to an Islamic country and you, then you will see real uh, persecution of homosexuals by Muslims. Uh, by the way, they do the same to Christians. Um, so the, the idea that people shouting things—I mean, to put it, Christians don't like it when certain people say awful things about. Uh, their beliefs, and they don't like it when someone says that Christians are going to go to heaven and perform oral sex on the Holy Spirit, which is what one atheist YouTuber has said. And so, well, this video is not yeah. monetized. Well, okay, but I'm just saying, <laughs> when you that some Christians say that that kind of thing, is, <laughs> some Christians say that that counts as persecution, and I would say no, it doesn't. That's not you're not being you're being offended. That's it. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, um, obviously, there are cases where horrible abuses take place on behalf of perhaps people claiming Christ. Um, and, and if you want to say no true Scotsman's fallacy, my thing about that is there are some people who genuinely aren't Scotsmen, right? And yeah. um, and they're well, no, and, well, and in fairness, some of them are probably like in the evangelical born again sense Christian too. 
I mean, there's just I've I've, I've said I prayed the prayer, right? So yeah, so, but, I, no, I've said I've said plenty. There's terrible Christians in the world, no doubt, yeah. and some of them have probably done some gay bashing, no doubt. I'm not saying that's never happened, but we're talking about why do you Christians, as if as okay. a whole community, all of us are persecuting? No, we're not. Okay, but it's ridiculous. The, the point I want to make is it certainly is the case that some have been abused and uh, and and things like that by people, whatever they really are, claiming Christ. The uh, what, what I think you said in there that was the salient point is that statistically, you, you don't make a state, don't represent Christianity as though Christians do this, when what you're talking about is a small minority um, that are acting, frankly, in contradiction to what Christ would have people to do. Yeah, you should say this. You should say criminals who engage in criminal behavior right. that are also, you know, culturally are Christian have have done some level of violence. But does the way he framed it as if Christians, like all of us, every like little old ladies in churches somewhere in Minnesota are actively persecuting homeless? It's ridiculous. All right. So the next thing, uh, divine hiddenness. Um, let's hear what he has to say. Why is God playing hide-and-seek with all of humanity? Uh, okay, why is God playing hide-and-seek with all of humanity? Uh, Dill Hunty has said this before, too. I mean, there is actually uh, a more academically constructed argument um, that, that is, you know, on divine hiddenness. I mean, that's actually, I think, a fair... I think there are two uh, arguments that atheists bring that Christians should not treat flippantly, that, that, that should give us pause, that we should say, hey, that I understand why you would ask this question, and I want to dignify it with a, with a response. That is various arguments from evil, I think, if for no other reason, because they are so emotionally potent, and even though that's the part of it that, that, um, that re requires more of a pastoral answer, uh, it is a question that even many Christians will come to on their own without any atheist ever telling them there's a thing called an argument from evil. Um, but then there's also this divine hiddenness issue. And I think that particularly in a culture where we get the dirt and the mire of the um, culture that is uh, enamored with empiricism and the sciences and all these kind of things, we, we get that from television and all other kinds of things. And we say, yeah, I mean... Why can't Jesus just show up on the White House lawn every two years and, and, and make a speech so we all know and maybe heal a couple of people or something? Now, my, my answer, well, I'll go last. I, I went first last time. Matt, what, you have any answer to the divine hiddenness? You thought about this, any? Well, uh, I think a lot of, a lot of times the, the, the people that I come across um, – they are requesting empirical evidence for a, a God who has identified himself as a spirit. So you, so what I often have to point out is uh, evidence doesn't just mean physical evidence. There's different types of uh, evidence. But even the concept of evidence makes sense within a certain framework. So... You know, for the crowds that I run in, we, we constantly have to educate as we go along. Uh, we constantly have to educate as we answer these questions. Um, 
So we have to work twice as hard not to appear as condescending or anything like that. But, um, you know, what are, what are you looking, you know, the question is, what are you looking for? And, you know, sometimes you, you, you'll come across a person like, like Dillahunty who just real, you know, I'm sorry. He just refuses to, um, he is constructing a, a certain epistemology where no amount uh, of evidence would convince him uh, anyway. And then it, it, it is an issue. It, it requires care. But at, at some point, you know, at some point, we understand that the Holy Spirit is, is, is the one who does the work and he's using our meager efforts for his glory and, and things like that. Amen. So, you know, we, we, we unload certain presuppositions, certain presuppositions of empiricism and things like that. And we, we talk about the many different evidences. You have philosophical evidence. You have evidence from morality. You have evidence from uh, logic, uh, you know, not... You have scientific evidence from the uh, from the beginning of of the you know universe. So there is evidence available, but sometimes the problem is you have to educate uh, while you're doing apologetics as well. Yeah, what I hear you saying is, look, man, uh, you're asking for something that we can like put in a beaker that shows you that God exists. At least many times that's what it is. Or you want a physical, uh, you want a person to come to Earth in the form of a man to proclaim the truth to you. And first of all, we believe that has happened and that there's mm -hmm. really good historical reason to believe that that has happened. Um, but, but secondly, what, what I, I knew that this was a thing. I know this is a thing that comes up in the YouTube community all the time. My answer to this is simple. It's look, uh, first of all, I, I don't want to, as you said, be condescending to the question because I do know why you're asking that question and I'm going to answer that. But let me just first say exactly what you just said, Matt, we have, what do you mean? There's no evidence. Uh, what, what, what do you mean uh, what, he's hidden? I mean, we've got arguments from philosophy, history, inferences from science. Um, I don't normally use religious experience arguments, but um, if I was in any crowd of any size, if I, how many of you think you've had an encounter with God and it would be very difficult to convince you otherwise, would you raise your hands? It's a huge chunk of the crowd. It's just put a little gravy on it and use those too. But when every physical object and every concept in the physical universe could be used as part of a compelling argument for God's existence and ultimately for the truth of Christianity, I don't find God to be all that hidden. Now, I know why people are asking that because they have defined in their epistemology, they want the sort of evidence that they would read about in a textbook in school in a science class. And actually, we have some stuff along those lines. But what? But it's it, presuppositions do play a role here. And I'm glad you brought that out because the reality is, once you put on the Christian shades for a minute, once you look, put on the lenses of a theistic and a Christian theistic worldview, and you look around, suddenly everywhere you look, there is just evidence of the truth of this message, and it's impossible not to see. It's like one of those pictures where it's like. I don't know what that is. It looks like a bunch of squiggly lines, but as soon as somebody tells you, no, it's a picture of a beautiful woman, instantly you see it, and that's all you see. You can't not see it now. And I think that's how it is. And the only reason, in my opinion, that everyone doesn't automatically see that is just because of the impact that our Western science-heavy culture has put on to us. That's my answer. Pritchett, what say you, sir? Okay, well, 
if you're going to believe in God, you got to believe in the wisdom of God. I believe, for from a Christian perspective, okay, and I know if you don't believe God exists, this doesn't help you, but from a Christian's perspective, like you said, well, we've already had Jesus show up. But even before that, from a Christian perspective, God is all-wise, and whether you're Calvinist, Molinist, Arminian, whatever, the world God created, he still, you know, unless you're an open theist, he knew what would be the case. And so I, I kind of like the Molinist answer on this, where God knew just actualize the world where the right amount of revelation was according to his plan and purpose to maximize the greatest number of people, free beings who would come to know him, right? But even if you're a Calvinist, God actualized the world that he decreed to bring about the maximum glory. Uh, Arminian, God knew, foreknew what would happen. And he knew how to um, maximize his grace, you know, and prevenient grace so that all people would have the same opportunity. Whatever you want to say, from a Christian worldview, God is all wise, okay? And so when we look, not just at Jesus showing up, but you look at biblical history, from my perspective, um, God showed up in the Exodus, and it didn't take long before they're building a golden cow to say, that's, mm. that, that's who did it. You know, Red Sea's part, you know, plagues, pestilence, prophets come with divine warnings, all kind of stuff. God seems to be every, everywhere, and when he is everywhere, it's kind of like William Lane Craig has said in debates, it's like people start to resent God's presence. Yeah. So obvious to them, you know? Yeah. It's like... It's like I said last week, when I'm sitting here in quarantine, thinking, contemplating omnipresence, I'm glad divine hidden is a thing when I'm sitting on the commode, you know? I, I don't want it right up. <laughs> don't be up in my grill, Jesus, <laughs> you know? So I mean, I, 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 so, but that's just me being, all right, but seriously, though, when God has, in human history, if you at least put on the Christian shades, like you were talking about, just this obviousness didn't seem to do any better than hiddenness, right? Yeah. Um, and in fact, I, you could argue in the history of the church, it's evidence that divine hiddenness actually worked better for the maximum number of people to worship Yahweh. Well, I mean, it, it, we all know that I love it when occasionally, and I said this recently, so people have heard me say it, but um, we, when people say, well, you know, in some of these African countries— um, that you tell them that there's some purpose behind their suffering. You tell them that God's got a plan and God's everywhere. They don't see God, blah, blah, blah. And we've actually got some people in developing world African countries who listen to this show and they'll put in the comments, what are you talking, man? We all believe in God down here. <laughs> so, uh, you got it's, something to say, Matt? Uh, yeah, I mean, once again, in the circles that I deal with, I deal with, primarily uh, African-Americans who who claim that I am the one who have have been uh, Western intellectual imperialism as anybody. And if you took that mess over to Africa or to any country that's outside of the West, they would they would look at look at you with the side eye. Yeah, how so, long has it been a church in Ethiopia? For example, for a for a for at least fifteen hundred years. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. Like, well, seriously. Yeah, I mean, and, and and aside from a a few people who think Augustine was a white dude, um, even though there's a lot of old paintings of him that it, you know, it, sorry, it looks more like you, MJ, than it does me. So, you know, uh, it he just, was, he, he, he was a brother. <laughs> yeah. 
I mean, the, the, the whole the whole uh, North African tradition of Christianity goes back to the beginning. Almost. It's just I, I don't get that claim. Uh, and there was a debate that that uh, what was it about three months ago that uh, what was his name? Um, uh, Dr. Bantu and Jabari. Yeah. Is that what you uh, think about? That was the most lopsided debate that anyone who is anyone who thinks that you could still get away with that claim. Oh man, there's just that was not even close. That <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's very sad. But but to get yeah. back to the to the whole divine hitting this thing is I mean you you look you have people who said that that they still wouldn't worship God. So yeah, I mean yeah. It, Come on now, God is not crazy. They say God. I believe God believes them. <laughs> you know. Yeah, they're so. exactly right. But you know, and 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 of course, Paul talks about this in First Corinthians. I mean, it just pleases God for the foolishness of preaching to be the the delivery system for this. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I think Jesus. I sound pious, like I say, Jesus would be a better preacher than any of us. But at the same time, um. That didn't go well, you know, uh, mm-hmm. for Jesus. So, I mean, it's, it's just th- this idea that Matt Dillahunty always says, well, God knows what it would take. I like Braxton's answer is like, and your answer is about, uh, you know, an even better way to put it. Um, yes. There is nothing. God doesn't know that because there, there's nothing there to know because you're, you're so entrenched in your rejection that there could never be anything. Mm-hmm. Um but at the same time, the foolishness of preaching has, uh, for two thousand years, transformed this entire world. So I'm, I'm, I think God's doing okay in spite of the so-called divine hiddenness problem, which turns out just to be a demonstration of God's wisdom in different a- epochs of human history. So, all right, um, yeah. So let's move on from divine hiddenness and let's hear about Jesus' return. Jesus return. Let's hear what he has to say. Do you believe Jesus is coming back to earth during your lifetime? If you do, what do you say to all those people who have been saying the same thing for centuries and who are no longer with us? Well, I'll answer first. I hope that Jesus returns in my lifetime. I, But I'm not one of these people that can call the, the hour and the day and those people seem to always get proven wrong or something anyway. So um, the the fact is, I don't know when Jesus is going to come back. And I agree, there have been a lot of people that thought he was going to come back in their lifetime, and he didn't. Okay, so what? I don't know when he's coming back. He could come back. He could. Here's my thing on this. He could come back before we're done recording this episode, and I hope he does. And uh, And I should be living my life every day such that if he came back within the hour, um, I would I would feel like I'd been pleasing to my Lord. If he comes back after I'm dead or 2,000 years from now, I should still live every day such as I would if I knew he was coming back in the hour. That's the position that I think Christians should take. But but again, I agree. You guys, you guys, feel free to ever disagree with me. You don't have to agree with me. Just no, no. My first the answer, my answer to his first question is I don't know if he's coming back in my lifetime um, because I don't, uh, I don't think about it much. And 100% of the biblical data leads me to believe that even if Jesus would go so far as 
one of those pieces of criterion of embarrassment. To, you know, as we, we we say in the apologetics community, to say no one knows the day or the hour, not even the sun. I'm good with. I'm not going to try to know more than Jesus. Okay. Um, and as far as what would I say to those who have thought that? I said you should have listened to Braxton Hunter and thought his way about it. Um, I would. I would also. I mean, I don't know. And so what? But uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm going to live my life in such a manner to occupy until he returns. And yeah. um, and that means uh, serving him with my mind, my heart, my, my soul, my intellect, and, and just trying to live in such a manner, um, just trying to live in such a manner that, that I'll be pleasing in his sight. But I mean, we're not commanded to know. So, I mean, this is a straw man. Far as I'm concerned, yeah. Any, any, I have a long-standing principle on Trinity Radio that's a part of my apologetic. Any uh, criticism from an, which again, questions aren't arguments, but clearly he means these to be criticisms of Christianity. And any criticism to which we can say so what, and it doesn't challenge our worldview a bit, is irrelevant to me. <laughs> uh, not that we should necessarily be saying so what, but uh, here we got a guy who's a. No, we should. All right, uh, talked a little bit about parallelism. Let's hear what he has to say here. Why is the story of Jesus' birth and life so similar to that of mythological beings who lived before his time? And if you want to hear about those stories, we'll leave a link below. Yeah, we'll not include that link, but we will put a link to <laughs> Hammett Meta's 78 uh, Questions for Christians. So you can follow down that rat hole of the internet if you want to. So um, uh, parallelism. Who's got what to say about parallelism on the virgin birth? Pritchard, you can go first. I'm going to grab this book next to me real quick. Go for it, man. I, I, I just want to say um, I invite you to look at uh, closely the original sources to where these parallels supposedly come from. And guess what? Uh, they're pretty much not really parallels in any meaningful sense whatsoever for like most all of them. Now, I know a lot of apologists want to say, well, the 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 first century Galileans, they wouldn't know anything to have. I, I, you can't say that either. Right. Um, but like you said, so what? That goes back to the Titan Titanic kind of thing. You know, very, very, very. I mean, just they were on a boat. You're on a boat kind of thing. Oh, so we so there's a boat in both stories. That's about where we get with this, because there's not much better than that. So for for par for parallelomania, um, I I'm not. I look at it, but look at it honestly, and and when you look at it honestly, um, they're not really parallels in the way that they they claim. So I'm not. I'm I'm never. Now, I don't have parallelophobia either. Um, so uh, uh, if there are similarities, and, and so take the Old Testament, for example. I mean, flood stories everywhere, right? Yeah, uh, I'm not opposed to that, you know? Law codes everywhere and similarities in law codes. I'm not opposed to that. But anyone who understands comparative literature studies knows that the differences there are far more important than the similarities are. And if you're not going to examine the differences and take them seriously within the worldviews of the two things that you're comparing, you're, there's no reason to take you seriously anyway. You're grasping at straws for this parallel business. 
period. You've got the differences are more important than the similarities are when you're doing comparative literature studies in that kind of way. Yes, I am a, a big fan uh, of uh, Mary Jo Sharp's work. And uh, she wrote a nice piece in uh, the book called Come Let Us Reason. It was uh, essays in Christian apologetics. And um, uh, Paul Copen and Dr. Paul Copen and, and Dr. William Lane Craig are editors. Um, but she, she encourages us uh, to, uh, you know, in the three-step approach to look at the, you know, look at the original context of the parallels, you know, get the whole story, um, look at them in context, ask the right questions. Uh, step number two is to take the parallels head to head, line them up, look at them head to head. You know, when we look at the story of Horace, well, first and foremost, his mom wasn't a virgin at all. Uh, she was also a contingent being. Jesus is not a contingent being. Jesus pre-existed his birth. Horace did not. Uh, but once again, his mother wasn't a virgin. Uh, second of all... Yeah, yeah it's important to point out that women, women who are not virgins get pregnant all the time. Right? Did I lose you guys? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Nothing unusual about a woman who's not a virgin getting pregnant. Yes, there, yeah. there's nothing unusual about that. Now, if you want to say that it was miraculous because he was a dead corpse, okay, but you still, you, you are you are still engaged in special pleading because you're asking us to ignore uh, the differences and just take your word for it. But right, you know, there there was nobody uh, rolling around in in the first century Palestine reading the hieroglyphs like that. Uh, you would need to at least produce some papyri. You know, on the one hand, you want to say that they were ignorant. On the other hand, you want to say that the writers of the Gospels could read, uh, uh, you know, it, it, the comedic scholars of Medunet or and you know, right. had, called had, the, the, Yeah, come on now. Had PhDs in world religions. Yeah. Now, I can't, you can't say that they may not have been, like I said, you can't say that they were totally ignorant of every other world religion out there, which is what some Christian apologists try to say, that they were backwater bumpkins in Galilee. No, I mean, there's there's a lot of uh, Greco-Roman cities in Galilee, even. There's three, mm -hmm. Troas and the other ones. But um, they also weren't experts in world religions that predated them by centuries either and had already phased out of their there's no line of trans it goes back to what i said earlier you've got to demonstrate a line of transmission yes so how did this story get to galilee not did did galileans know about pagan religions of course they knew of some um especially in the greco-roman traditions they would have been even more familiar but um What's the line of transmission and how? How did it get there from there to here? And they never demonstrate that. And like you said, they never show any sort of archaeological evidence of that transmission either. So, and, and the archaeological evidence that they that they try to pull, because you know, I watched the debate. I, I I think Dr. James White did a good job with Robert Price. Uh, the evidence that they pull was, was evidence after seventy A.D. and also after the Second War. Where uh, where changes had happened within Palestine, and it, once again, just is is just ignoring which all all of the things that you just said about a line of transmission, 
the archaeological evidence is really, really late, you know, to, to have had an impact. So it's, it's the worst form of pseudo-historiography possible. Right. And, that's, that's exactly because I'm, I'm interested in those kinds of things. I, I want to see uh, because I'm always on the I'm always having this argument with other Christians that Galileans mm -hmm. were illiterate idiots, you know, because other Christians want to dumb them down so much, you know, that, well, it's hard to even believe that Peter could spell. No, I mean, it's not. I've, I've gone over this, and uh, if you want to see a good overview of this, go see my first Peter um, uh, series that we have here on Trinity where I talk about Galilee in the first century. So, so I have to have the conversation the other way, but I'm interested. So if there is evidence there, I'm interested to see how that interplays. But like you said, not only the line of transmission, but the the differences are far more important than the similarities because mm -hmm. the differences can demonstrate that there's no conceptual framework that they would have wanted to borrow from in the first place. And this, the similarity is mere coincidence. It's just, that's all it is. And so... I like to have those discussions and hash them out, but most people aren't even aware of anything other than a web page that said this is like that. So let's so they say that to you without any knowledge whatsoever, yeah. including some scholars. And of so, course, and of course, we uh, need to point out that, and I think you alluded to this already, Pritchett, is that even if we did find a perfect parallel, it wouldn't necessarily mean that the Christian message borrowed from that. I mean, for example, right. need I bring up the oft-repeated case of, I forgive as the Voyage of the Titan or the Wrecking of the Titan, this uh, fictional novel written about 14 years prior to the Titanic, and the details are shockingly similar to the details of the Titanic, so much so that people at the time thought that the author must be some kind of a clairvoyant. And he had to tell him, no, I'm, I'm, no, I'm not. I'm telling you, I just wrote this book. So, uh, and it's shocking how close the details are. But nobody wants to say, oh, well, I guess the Titanic didn't ever happen, right? It was clearly bought. What about, what about Abraham Lincoln and John F. Kennedy? Oh, yeah, the similarities yeah. between them, yeah. Come and, on now. And there's even, and there's even something, I, there's another one where a plane flew into the Empire State Building. And if you say it just right, you can be like, what if I told you that a plane flew into the uh, such and such floors on a building, a prominent building in New York that New York is known for, and all this and such, and all these things are very similar to 9/11. Like, see, 9/11 didn't really happen. This is just borrowing details from the uh, the, the plane that flew into the Empire State Building or whatever. So, right. um, yeah, we can do this with a lot of things. I mean, we could, if we didn't have video footage of this, we could talk about the similarities between um, uh, when Harry met Sally and. Uh, uh, sleepless in Seattle and you've got mail, right? Even including some of the same actors. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it just gets crazy. All right. So let's, uh, let's and Nora Ephron, of course, she <laughs> was behind all those. Anyway, but the point made the, the parallel of mania is it, what it, what it amounts to is a clever distraction, but it doesn't amount to anything more than that. Yeah. All right, yes. let's uh, let's move on to. We're going to do two more questions uh, or three more questions uh, because then I'm going to leave eight more questions uh, for when we have Adam on. So let's let's talk about this one: literal or metaphorical. How do you decide which sections of the Bible are literally true and which ones are just metaphorical? Um, I'll go first and just say that the way that I would decide that is I and I wouldn't necessarily say like a whole book of the Bible or even necessarily a whole verse of the Bible. We'd have to take a look. 
what we do is first we look at the genre. The Bible has multiple genres of literature in it. It's got biography. It's got uh, narrative. It's got um, it, it's it's got apocalyptic. It's got all kinds of it's got poetry. It's got all types of genres in it. And so we would want to take that into consideration. I mean, this is just the kind of stuff you get in the first chapter of a hermeneutics book, right? Is we want to look right. at what 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 is the what is the culture like? What is this um, genre of this text? What do we know occurs in this genre? Are there certain phrases that we know in texts from the, the time, if we have texts from the time, that, that they use these when they're going into a parable or a metaphor or whatever? And we take all that stuff into consideration and we decide, you know what? We do the same exact thing in today's culture. If I walk into a bookstore and I pick up a book randomly off the bookshelf and I open it up, the way I determine whether it's metaphor or literal is I check out the genre. Is this a book of poetry? Is this a book of fiction? What What is this? So the same way you do with any book, man. Right. Right. I, I just want to say, um, how do you know by what you you know by literal versus metaphor by starting with the, the the principle that you're going to take the Bible seriously, and then you're going to take what's called uh, hermeneutics, and you can take that at Trinity College of Bible Theological Seminary, where yours truly is the professor, and I'd love to walk. All of you can audit it, and I walk you through how you learn to interpret the Bible in all of its varied, uh, gated categories of literature, like Braxton just discussed. So, yeah, it, it's just this is basic hermeneutics. I, I would think that uh, most people who are watching videos like that have heard the word. Um, our, our atheist friends, our atheist friends, they know that, I mean, hermeneutics has always uh, primarily been a word used in Bible colleges and seminaries to talk about the discipline of, um, I mean, our culture. I mean, it goes back to Plato. But I mean, I'm just saying the, the, the word hermeneutics as a discipline is used to be typically centered around Bible college and seminary. But now a lot of other people are talking about hermeneutics and exegesis in all sorts of literary sure. analysis. So, so the word's not reserved to us anymore. A lot of people use the terms. Yeah, classes so, use it to look at the literature they're dealing with. Shakespeare scholars will use it. Yeah, so the, the word's no longer particular to Christian academic circles. So um, I suspect he probably knows that. Um, so what he's trying to get at is, you know, uh, kind of this uh, probably, mm -hmm. and this is just me being charitable. He's probably getting at why do some people take some parts literal and others take it um metaphorical so how do you tell how do you tell the difference because you don't you may not do it like other people do it right if, if i'm being most charitable that's that's what i think he's asking it goes back to the why there's so many different interpretations of the bible kind of thing um but even that that all comes down to good hermeneutics and bad hermeneutics but none of that bad hermeneutics doesn't make scripture false and bad hermeneutics doesn't make a literal passage metaphor any more than bad hermeneutics will make a metaphorical passage literal. So it all comes down to hermeneutics. Anything to add to that, Matt? Yes, uh, good hermeneutics is is key. Uh, also, you know, there's passages in the scripture where where Jesus says that I am the door. Is he a, a literal door, or is he speaking in a certain fashion? Obviously, he's speaking in a certain fashion. So you can still even use certain uh, skills that you acquired in high school to understand that Jesus is not a literal door. And Paul even tells you when he's speaking uh, allegor uh, you know, allegorically, 
Uh, yeah, Galatians four. Yeah. Yes. So, so the scripture is not ambiguous like that. Now, there are some places where we have to work hard, but are you going to work hard or are you going to just be lazy? Uh, a lot of people, a lot of people want quick answers, and that's that's the problem uh, of wanting really quick answers. But uh, I like how Dr. Michael Heiser says it that the Bible was written for us and not to us. Uh, so we do have to put in some work. Yeah, that's good. And yeah. and, th- and there's that 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 goes all the way back to serving the Lord, also with your mind. And so yeah, we're we're up to do that. Yeah, you brought up a really good point that in John, John is known for using images for the person of Jesus. So bread becomes really important. Light and darkness becomes very important. Water becomes very important. He he also mentions that Jesus is a door. What is a door? A door is a movable structure that allows access into a place or prevents access from a place. Yeah. Huh? What's that? Jesus actually that's a dialogue quote. I am the door. Right. Yeah. But John puts it on Jesus' lips. I believe Jesus actually right. said it, but it's in the Gospel of John. So right. the point is, Jesus is the one who can allow you access into a place you really want to be. But if you read, if you read the prologue to John, you understand some of these images already. It's why um, I've, I, you know, you, there are clues like that. So in John chapter three, uh, famous for John three sixteen. But before you get to John three sixteen, when the conversation with Nicodemus begins. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, same came to Jesus by night. Okay, so why, why does it say he went to him at night? Well, because he went to him at night. Okay, fair enough. I think he <laughs> did go to him at night. But it's also important that on the heels of John uh, clarifying for you in John chapter 1 that he thinks of Jesus as the light that lights every man coming into the world, then when we get to John chapter 3 and you see that Nicodemus came to Jesus at, in darkness— even though this man is a man who is a very religiously minded ruler of the Jews, he was still in darkness and needed to find the light. Um, right. So, you, so you, these things just pop off the page, but it requires some reading comprehension. And as Matt yeah. said, don't be lazy. Yeah, it's the, the literary framing of John's narrative, which I, I think you're right. I agree, too, that Jesus said, I am the door. Uh, but I also think that John with editorial purview includes dialogue like that, that other gospel authors don't. And like you say, he does it to frame the whole thing. And as MJ points out, anyone with basic reading comprehension that, which I know that doesn't exist much anymore. People can hardly understand (laughs) tweets anymore, but I mean, anyone with basic (coughs) reading comprehension can get that imagery that he's setting up and get, get the framing devices right because like you said i mean a lot of it's in the prologue you know talking about to him he gave the right to become children of god and then you you get in the born again language in chapter three with nicodemus there you know all of these threads and that's why i always encourage people uh whether you've read the bible a million times or read or just now getting into it always read if you're going to study john don't read a chapter a day until you've already read the entire thing once through then in one sitting um, now, a book like Genesis is going to take you over three hours to read. Um, so you have the guy read it to you and you speed up the speed if you want to go <laughs> faster. But I mean, don't ever read anything in the Bible until you've read the whole the whole book in one sitting before you go back and pick it apart. And But if you do that, it's a lot of the question, like what he's asking, it's easy to know when to take most things literally or metaphorically. Right. So that that's just basic reading. 
Now, like you said, Braxton, you were talking about, you know, uh, here we are, we're answering a guy who's asking these questions, right? And, and there's 78 questions in a video that's not that long, nowhere near as long as our response videos. Um, it's easy to ask those questions, right? But answering them is just as easy. Uh, it just takes longer to answer the questions than it does to ask. And one of the things that atheists confuse is they think that because they can ask a hard question, it means that they can reject any sort of hard answers to it just because they don't like it. Or if, the answer is, or, or if the answer is in any way complicated, which this one isn't. Again, we could have just said, same way you do any other book. How do you right. determine whether it's literal or metaphorical? Same way you do anything. I mean, we could have left it at that, but we're actually trying to teach. But in a question like, why do you believe, uh, why, why do you believe the Kalam argument's a good argument? Okay, something like that. Yeah, that's going to require, and they think if they ask you a question and your response is complex, they say, well, that's just word salad. Well, no, yeah. you asked a complex question. There isn't actually, we don't need to give a complex answer. It's just that your criticisms of the faith have have gotten into a realm where they require more complex answers. And complex answers are fine. Go to a physics lab and ask them to give you simple answers for everything. You're not going to last very long. There are difficult right. questions. Explain quantum physics to me in one sentence. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, you know, so, yeah. uh, so that anyway, all right, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's see here. Uh, we'll let this be our last question. Um, uh, last few questions, I guess, if there's more than one, this has to do with the requirements for salvation and who's getting into heaven, which of course he already did ask and we covered in video one, but it's coming again here. What are the minimum requirements for being a Christian and who falls under that definition? Fred Phelps. Pat Robertson, James Dobson, President Obama. Um, you guys go ahead. Pritchett, go ahead. Okay. Um, well, depends on what we, what, who qualifies as Christian. Well, there's a cultural use of the term Christian. Uh, Christian. How does one identify themselves religiously? And then in kind of evangelical communities, they'll talk about no, like true Christian, like born again. Who's Christian going to heaven? That's whatever. what he wants to know. Who's going to heaven? Yeah, well, those who repent and believe the gospel. Amen. And if that's James Dobson, that's James Dobson. If that's Pat Robertson, that's Pat Robertson. If it's Barack Obama, it's Barack Obama. If it's Braxton Hunter, it's Braxton Hunter. Is repent and believe the gospel. Now, now he threw in Fred. Repent, he threw in Fred Phelps, which you said in the first video. Uh, I don't see enough fruit there to, to, to say that that guy's right. Yeah. Right. I, I don't see enough fruit there, but again, I'm not his judge. I also said that in the first videos, like I've said in many Trinity radios that a lot of crappy people are going to be in heaven. Um, well, they won't be once you know, they get there. Right. Is the point. Right. But uh, a lot of, a lot of people who are crappy on this side will probably end up in, like, People say, do you think John Calvin's saved? Yeah, probably. He's a terrible human being, but doesn't mean, you know, that's not the standard is not, <laughs> are you a terrible human being? Uh, and thank God for that, because I can be a terrible human being on occasion. You know, not as bad as John Calvin, but um, yeah, I think John Calvin and Jonathan Edwards uh, and a lot of the reformers were just well, reprehensible human being dirtbags. Yeah, well, uh, um, before we... But that doesn't... Go ahead. <clears throat> 
That doesn't mean that I don't think they didn't write anything good, and it doesn't mean that I think they're all in hell. Now, other people will say, yeah, Luther's in hell, Calvin's in hell, blah, 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 blah. I'm sure the, our Catholic friends during the Reformation thought that as well. But uh, I don't say that. But like you said, we can't, and like I said in the other video, you can judge by their fruits and make probably an educated guess. And the worst thing I can be about it is wrong and that Fred Phelps uh, is in heaven. That's the worst thing I could be is wrong about that. But if you ask me, I was like, well, I don't see enough evidence. Well, I, and your point so, is whatever you're saying you believe, don't be like Fred Phelps, right? Uh, right. But Matt, what do, you, what do you have to say about this? Uh, I think fruit and, and fruit is one thing. And I think that God also judges us and holds us accountable based off of the light that we have. Uh, yep. so a lot of times, and I'm probably going to open up a little bit of a can of worms, Let's do it. but, uh, you know, take slavery for instance. And one of our favorite theologians, uh, that has his own podcast will defend uh, certain reformed guys tooth and nail, uh, that they were men of their time and things like that. Now, it, this is my opinion, but. You had people like John Wesley and certain abolitionists preaching just as effectively against that. So right. what I say is I don't see enough fruit, but God is the judge. He's a judge. I think that's so a really I, good point, Matt. I think I think you made it. I mean, we've talked about that before ourselves. They These people yeah. have the same Holy Spirit living inside of them, presumably convicting them as we do. And he leads us into all truth. And, mm -hmm. you know, I, one of the difficult things is um, looking back on, on those days, of course, all, all of us want to say we would have been the ones to decry it. Right. We would have been the ones like like Wesley or whoever. But uh, but but I don't know. But what I do know is if I've got the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit should be convicting me for treating my fellow brothers and sisters made in the image of God. uh in any way that is less than how I should treat the image of God. Let's take, let's praise John Calvin for something. Mm -hmm. I, one of the, one of my favorite things that John Calvin ever said, and I'm going to butcher the quote is where he said that whenever you're in the presence of another human being, whoever that human being is, and whatever you think about that human being, that is a person made in the image of God. And there ought to be a level of reverence for mm -hmm. God that who's in whose image they've been made. And, um, yeah. and so that's all relevant. You know, I think uh, when it comes to set the salvation question, and I, th I want this to be very clear, we always say, like Pritchett just said, you repent and believe the gospel. But believe right. in the biblical sense doesn't necessarily just entail mental assent because people will say, well, I can't choose to believe something. Oh, yeah, you can. You can choose to believe something. First of all, you can choose to believe something in, in the terms of the mental assent uh, situation by what we call indirect doxastic voluntarism, you choose to focus on certain things that would allow a belief to a, a mental belief to arise within you. And you, and, and if you say, well, that would be just like faking it till you make it. Guess what, pal, you do that with things all the time because all of us have bias of some, to some degree. Um, even if we try to minimize that we're doing it in some area of our lives. So, um, so, so that's an important thing. You know, recently we were talking about Pascal's wager, well, I can't just choose to believe just to be safe anyway. Well, that's a whole other discussion, but here's the thing. You can choose to start believing Christianity in the sense of the New Testament biblical sense, which is 
to to live a life loyal to Jesus. Um, you, yeah. you know that even if you're having trouble with the mental ascent part of it, you live a life loyal to Jesus and believe in that sense to place your faith in him. Um, but but I think you can yeah. even choose the mental ascent sense of it. Right. Well, it's both a mental ascent and then you'll 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 have the fruit. Um, so it is more than that. Uh, going back to something that MJ said, um, this is just a pro tip for other apologists um, and and probably our friends in the theology community. Um, don't ever use the line they were products of their time to justify reprehensible behavior that you've disqualified yourself from me giving you any attention and me going out to proclaim to everyone else they should not pay attention to anything you say. That is not an excuse, because if you know anything about their times, you know, one, there were people who did not agree with them at their time, like MJ pointed out, and two, if you knew anything about that time. So let me give an example. Jonathan Edwards purchased a slave girl and wrote a sermon on the back of the receipt some years later, okay? Now, people say, yeah, but he was a product of his time, but if you ever read slave journals from women like Harriet Jacobs and other uh, freed slave women, do you know what good, honest, Christian folk did with their slave girls. If he was a product of his time, it is worse than you could possibly imagine. So please don't ever say stupid things like, well, I know that they did these kinds of things, but they're products of their time. That Don't ever say that because you've disqualified yourself from having any justification or argument that makes any sense to rational people. Anything else to add, Matt? Oh, no, no, no. I mean, uh, like I said, ultimately God is the judge and you know, we repent and we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and, right. and uh, here comes the fruit, you know. Amen. Well said, gentlemen. And uh, we'll try to wrap it up here. But listen, folks, uh, go check out, you know, what you're supposed to say on YouTube. I've done interviews where they say this and this is what they're supposed to say. They're supposed to say, go check out Matt's channel. We're going to put a link in the description of this. You go check it out. And if you like what you've heard today and you want more of it and you like what you see there, then subscribe to his channel. I don't operate that way. Go subscribe to Matt's channel because guess what? Even if you're not personally into all the stuff that he talks about, um, probably there's some stuff there you should be into that you can learn from. But secondly, here's a guy who's trying to do what we're trying to do, which is to um, uh, in engage in the new mission field, which is YouTube. And even if he's engaging in a type of ministry on YouTube that isn't your favorite type of ministry, that little subscribe doesn't cost you anything. And as he gets enough of those, it unlocks new abilities for him on his channel. And so, uh, so go do that. Just go, just go subscribe to his channel, and I'm sure he would really appreciate that. And Matt, anything else yeah, you want to say before we let well, you go? I, well, I just want to say before Matt gives that is you should listen. I learned something, and I'm smarter than most people, and I learned something. <laughs> Every time I listen to his podcasts, uh, which he does too infrequently, that's the only thing that I want to knock about. You need to do it more. But uh, MJ is the one guy, I think, who has read every book that I've read and then re have, has read books that I haven't. I mean, the, he, Savant. Wow. Yeah, he's read it. His library makes me jealous on occasion. So, I mean, not often, <laughs> but he, he does have some books that I don't own. And that just irritates me about him that he has books that I don't. So, well, another thing uh, is Matt, Matt, check it out. Matt has been good to our channel. You know, um, he probably, he didn't ask me to say this, probably would, doesn't want me to say it, but he has financially invested multiple times in uh, Trinity radio. He's also a student, which means that, um, 
he's supporting that way the ministry slash uh, institution of higher education that that we work at. So he in every yeah. way he makes what we do possible. So right. it's no surprise that he's one of our favorite humans. That's right. Absolutely. I like him better than Adam just for all those reasons. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, if everybody can do me a favor, you can just find my channel by the by searching for the Urban Christian Institute. And please uh, hit that subscribe button. And uh, I'm going to try to catch up on some of my homework. I'm there you knocking, go. Out, uh, knocking out systematic logic so I get to go back and listen to Dr. Pritchett in, in his uh, thicker days. <laughs> well, the good thing about coming on Trinity Radio is it's going to be hard for him to give you a bad grade after he just did an episode with you. <laughs> That's right. Oh, man. All right, guys. Well, uh, to everyone else, we'll see you next time on Trinity Radio.